Romans 3 through 13. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, through many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if, in, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. The patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the very word of God. Throughout the letter to the Romans, we've been seeing the Apostle Paul eager to uh, explain the gospel of Jesus as he has come to understand it as the fulfillment of God's long-awaited promise first given in the Old Testament all the way in the Garden of Eden, especially as we see it in Genesis 12 and 15 in the Abrahamic covenant, all of the great promises that God has made, which is especially this, the promise to bring restoration to all that God has made, to his planet, to the cosmos, and to do it through his people, through, in the Old Testament, Israel, now reconstituted, um, reimagined around Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus, which is now both more and less than Israel in the Old Testament. More because it involves not just ethnic Jews, but believing Gentiles like you and me. Less because it's not every Jew who has believed. And this mysterious plan of God unfolding in the first century and now us as heirs of this great story uh, has played out in real time and space, in history. That's why, side note, when we recite the Apostles' Creed, there's that name, Pontius Pilate. Why does Pontius Pilate, that Roman governor, get in the creed? And the reason is because this has all happened in time and space. You can look it up in history. We're talking about real events that have, that have made us who we are today. And we are now to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, inaugurated on earth, 
What would it be like for you and me to see ourselves as members of the true Israel, the true people of God, through whom God is now bringing restoration to all of his creation? Paul is made, has made a transition now in chapter 12. Pastor Jod introduced us to that last week. He's made a transition from all of this as a reality of what God has done, what the Christian faith is all about, to how we now must live as citizens in the kingdom of God. You'll notice in our text this morning, the word, the very first word is the little word for. And the reason it's there is because everything that Paul is about to say, not just in the passage before us, but really through the rest of the letter, uh, depends upon the truth of verses 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, brothers and sisters. Remember who you are. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, all coming out of the mercies of God that are found in the gospel of Jesus, and thereby be able to discern the will of God in every moment, in every circumstance, where the minds of God's people are renewed by the mercies of God, communities of faith emerge that exemplify the genuine love of God. Let me say that again. Where the minds of God's people are renewed by the mercies of God, communities of faith, we might call them churches, communities of faith emerge that embody and exemplify the genuine love of God. So in order for us to see this this morning, in the passage before us, I want us to, I want us to see these three things that Paul points out. First, who we are, that is, members of the body of Christ. What we now do, namely, use the gifts that God has given to us, and then what it is we're seeking, genuine love, a love that is found nowhere else, cannot be found anywhere else. So who we are, members of the body of Christ, what we do, use the gifts that God has given to us, and then what, what we want to see happen, what we're, what we're after, genuine love that the world cannot know. So let's begin with verses 3 through 5 of our text this morning. And, and here we see that as Christians are transformed by the renewal of their minds, one of the first things that, that, that ought to happen, that must happen, if our minds are being renewed by the mercies of God, one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to have a healthy, proper view of ourselves. That is to say... We will not think too highly of ourselves, but we will be able to think with sober judgment. We will know who we really are. We will know who God intends for us to be. So I wonder, do you have an accurate evaluation of yourself? Do you know your true identity? 
Now, that's the, that's the question that's being asked in our day, isn't it? And it's all over the place. Who are you? Who's the true you? What is your real identity? The world is eager to conform us into its standard of self-identification. So what is the biblical perspective on this? The answer in our passage this morning is really clear. Because of the mercies of God, you and I have been set free from the slavery of self-identification. <laughs> you didn't hear that. Because of the mercies of God, you have been freed from the slavery of self-identification. A proper view of the self is the freedom that comes from finding you don't belong to yourself. You don't get to figure this out, who you are on your own. That is slavery, and the world is trying to conform you into that slavery. The Bible has a different picture. Granted, it's a picture that the world would call slavery. You decide which is the true freedom. The Bible says you are part of a community. You are part of a family. You are a member of the people of God, the true Israel. And this is your real identity. You belong to the church. Now, we saw in the last three chapters that when we say the church, the Christian church, we don't mean that the church has now replaced the Israel of the Old Testament. But the church is nonetheless the place that we are to look to find the assembly of God's people, the new covenant community of God, the true Israel. And as with any family, there are expectations for how we must live as members within the community. Now, go back into your Old Testament, <coughs> excuse me, and you'll remember that when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he brings them to Mount Sinai and he gives them the family rules. We call them the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments begin with a preamble. And the preamble is the grounding for the rules that follow. The preamble begins is this, and it is the freedom of God's mercy to his people. Here's what you read in Exodus 20 before God gives the family rules. He says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You've got to keep the preamble in mind before you start thinking about the rules. It's because of what God has done for us that God now says, do this and do not do that. The rules are not cold and impersonal. They flow out of a vibrant relationship with the one true God who is rich in mercy. Now I want you to read Romans chapter 12 like that. I want you to read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Are you looking at it? Like a preamble to the family rules. Just as God in mercy had brought 
Israel out from slavery in Egypt, so God's mercies, catch it, so God's mercies are the ground for life in the Christian community. The grounding for life within the church is the mercies of God. You cannot read the passage before us this morning. And I'm I'm lingering here for a moment because this is always the danger that Christian people have. We're lingering here because you cannot read this passage. You can't read the rest of Romans for that matter and forget that God's claim on us is rooted in freedom. The freedom from slavery. The mercy that he has already shown to us. Now that he has made us members of his family, what's next? It's to learn the family rules. How are we going to be as the people of God? Paul tells his young disciple Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 that it is critical that we know. Here's what he says. That we know how we ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now, I know, I know, I know. Maybe you grew up in the church, and when you hear, this is how you're supposed to behave, the only thing you could think of is, you know, you don't run in church, you know, or you're supposed to dress a certain way. Like, that's the family rules. But we're sticking to our text. Is that fair? Can we do that? Can we just, can we just let the family rules come from the Bible? Would that be all right with you? All right, so here's what it says. There's ways that we're supposed to behave in the family. And the first rule is this. Look at it. Do not think too highly of yourself, but think with sober judgment. His concern, the concern for the family is think of yourself properly within the community of God's people. I mean, if you think too highly of yourself, you're going to be proud and arrogant. And who wants those kinds of people in the family, right? It's not the kind of family life we want. But I want you to notice that the exhortation that Paul gives is not, don't think too highly of yourself, think lowly. That's not what he says. He says instead, be sober. Not think too lowly of yourself, which can be a false pride, but think reasonably. The word that he uses here basically means keep your head. Keep your head. To avoid pride, you've got to see yourself accurately. You have to assess yourself the way God does. Now, now how does, what does that mean? How do you accurately assess yourself within the community? And the answer comes, look what he says. You are to think of yourself, each one of us, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So, for every Christian, every one of us within the church, God has dealt out a certain amount, a certain measure of faith. Yes, this is what it means. God has given to some more or perhaps greater faith than he has given to others. In chapter 14... Paul will even speak within the church of some who are strong in the faith while others are weak in faith. God is responsible for giving in his church different measures of faith. Now, 
surely some in here are already protesting in their hearts. Well, that's not fair. Why would God give to that brother or sister more faith, greater faith than me? But if faith is a gift, as the Bible insists, why would we expect that God gives the same or equal gifts to his people? Are you the kind of person that on, are you the kind of sibling growing up that on Christmas was like, hey, I wonder how much mom and dad spent on my brother or on my sister? Is that, what, is that the kind of person you are? If God wants to be generous, does he have to be generous in exactly the same amount to the penny as he is to everyone else? Is that what you demand of God? What if instead, what we find is that God as a lavish giver, as a generous giver, intends to fill to the brim the capacity of faith that each of us has? You see, God in his intent is not to leave any of his people unsatisfied. As long as we each have enough to eat and our appetites are satisfied, do you really need to be concerned about who ate more food? What you should see instead is that God has given different capacities, different measures of faith to his people. And you know why? Because he's joined us together. He's joined us together. Verses 4 and 5 describe this in terms of a human body. It's the same analogy you probably remember Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12. And the point of the analogy is to say that to be a Christian, to be a member of God's people, is to be joined together with other Christians just like you would find in a human body. We resist the temptation to think too highly of ourselves when we recognize that we are both a necessary part of the body of Christ, but we are not the only part. A body has many members, but the members do not all have the same function, verse 4 says. And that's how God has designed his community, his family. We are, though many, one body in Christ. Verse 5, we all who are in Christ then have a place in his community, in his church, and we have a role to play within it. So I want to say to every member of the body of Christ, to every Christian, of course you matter. Every single one of us matters. If you matter enough to God that he gave his son to save you, then you matter to his people. You matter to his family. Every last one of you matters because God gave his son to save you. And so you matter to us. But let's be sober minded. God's love for you, Christian, is unquestioned. We sang about it this morning. But so is his love for the rest of the family. We are not our own. We need the family. We need the whole family to which God in mercy has joined us. Now, if by the mercies of God, we can have this proper view of ourselves, right? Don't think too highly of yourself. You need the family. But you matter. You're part of the family. If you can have that sober 
judgment of ourselves, if we could do this, then here's what will happen. We will begin to see what we should do. We'll know our function. We'll know our role. Verse 4 says we will fulfill that function. And the way we'll do it is by using the gifts that we've been given. Now, Paul's analogy of the body, I think, is really aimed right here. In order for you to understand the whole, the whole biblical concept of what we would typically call a spiritual gift, you've got to comprehend your place in the body. Gifts, functions within the church, mean nothing if we don't understand what the church is, what the family of God is. So Paul has, has given us this analogy in order to, to summon us, every one of us, I'm looking at you, every single one of us, to now use these gifts within the body of Christ. Now, take a look at verse 6. The word gifts in verse 6 is the Greek word charisma. It's one of the most difficult words for Christians to grasp. And I say difficult because, as you know, this is the word that creates all sorts of difficulties for us and is even, to our shame, used to demarcate some Christians as opposed to others. Charismatics, non-charismatics. Which are you, right? That is a real shame. That is a real shame. This word is a verbal noun. It shares the same root as the standard word for grace. So our word here is charisma. The Greek word for grace is charis. So these are the same, these come from the same idea. Grace is that which is freely given. And sometimes in our Bibles, it's even translated as the word gift. For example, Romans 6.23, we've already seen it, says that while the wages of sin is death, the gift of God, the charisma of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And even here in verse 6, Paul says Christians have different gifts. What's he say? According to the grace the charis that is given to each one of us. So a charisma, a charisma is the concrete manifestation of the grace that is received. Let me explain. Let me give an example. Think of it like this. If you say to someone you've disappointed, child, a spouse, a friend, if you say, hey, give me grace, what you really mean is, Something like, give me another chance. Or maybe you mean, give me forgiveness. Grace simply refers to a gift. So it would be odd for you to say, when you've disappointed somebody, hey, give me a gift. Right? What you really mean is the content. The, what the gift that you want is a second chance. Or forgiveness. Or put up with me a little longer. Right? Like, that's what we really mean when we say, hey, be gracious to me. Give me a gift. 
It's the content of the gift. Okay, so if I say to you, hey, I've got a gift for you this morning, for all of you. You're like, what is this, Oprah? You know, like what's about to happen? Uh, You want to know what is the gift, right? Like what's the content? What is about to be revealed? Well, that's what's really exciting, right? It's not so much the idea that there's a gift, but it's the content, the manifestation of the gift. And Paul has made it plain. He has made it plain right here and everywhere else that he talks about what we would call a spiritual gift, that since every Christian is, by definition, a recipient of grace, every single Christian possesses a charisma. There's no such thing as a Christian that is not charismatic. We should do away with these distinctions. We're not using that word correctly. Every single Christian has received grace, so every single Christian possesses a gift or gifts. There is no such thing as a giftless Christian. There's no Mirabelles like in Encanto, right? I worked hard on that one. So I was like, please let this go over well. I hope you forgive Okay, so what's the gift? Let's open it up. Let's see what we've got. And then the next few verses, Paul gives some examples. Are you ready? Here they are. And the gifts that he spells out here have some overlap with the other two places where Paul mentions them, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4. But, but everybody knows that none of those lists are identical. And it's probably not true that even if we put them all together, we've got some sort of an exhaustive list. So... What are all the spiritual gifts? Well, there's several mentioned in the Bible, but probably not all of them. By the way, Paul also doesn't seem to be too concerned in any of those passages with helping us identify which gift you have. That's disappointing to some, I know. There's no spiritual gifts tests given to us in the Bible. So, In the passage before us, we see that there's seven gifts that are mentioned. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, and acts of mercy. But Paul doesn't define them any further, and so I'm not going to either. Instead, the main verb that he uses is in verse 6, and it's the imperative for us to use the gifts that we've been given. Actually, curiously... In Greek, the verb is absent. It's not that our English translations have this wrong. It's probably what Paul is getting at. But the emphasis is not so much on the command, use the gift, as much as it is on the fact, the reality, that we all have gifts. If you're a Christian, you possess gifts because you've been shown grace. Again, if you receive a gift... You don't usually have to be told, use it, unless you're not that interested in the gift you've been given. And maybe that's actually our real problem when it comes to spiritual gifts. Maybe the biggest problem we have is we're just not that impressed. The gifts that God gives, the manifestations of grace, not that exciting. 
That says more, by the way, about you and me and our condition than it does the gifts God gives. I mean, who among us would dare to think that the God we've gathered to worship today gives gifts that are not that interesting? And yet, we live our lives believing just that. The problem that I see with spiritual gifts is not that the gifts are not valuable, but that their their value is not in what you and I tend to value. So, here's what I mean by that. Back in chapter 1, Paul told the Roman Christians, this was a long time ago, I know, so, Back in chapter 1, Paul told the Roman Christians, he said something staggering at the very beginning of the letter. Here's what he says. He says to a, to a congregation he's never met, but he's trying to get there. He says, I am eager to see you so that I can impart to you some charisma, some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And then... He quickly clarified what he meant, Romans 1, 11, and 12. He says, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. This is the essential point of God's charisma, of God's gifts of grace. God has given them so that we might use them. He's given them to us that we might use them to strengthen and encourage the family of which we are now a member. That's why he gave you a gift. So in our present text, Paul refers to the grace given to him by which he now urges a right view of ourselves in Romans 12, 3. But he also speaks then of the grace given to every believer. Paul speaks as a charismatic to charismatics. And he wants them to catch a vision. He wants them to catch a vision for how beneficial they can each be to the body of Christ as well as how much they stand to benefit from the other members too. So if there's a rebuke in the passage before us, it's not because you haven't figured out what your gift is. It's not because you haven't gotten involved in some specific ministry in the local church. The problem, the rebuke that many of us have is that God's gifts of grace are poured out on us mainly so that we can use them to benefit your family, to strengthen others. But if you do not properly see yourself as a member of God's family, that's not going to be very exciting to you. You're going to fail to see the excitement of what it would mean for us to share the grace that we've been given to encourage one another. Now, these spiritual gifts, by the way, can hardly be understood as mere natural talents. You're still trying to think about what your gift is, aren't you? Way too much of our conversation around spiritual gifts usually ends up gravitating toward the various vocations, hobbies, interests that each of us has. Now, by the way, those are, those are interesting and beneficial. I mean, let's just be honest. Right here at Crosstown, how many of you, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you 
have received free medical advice from medical professionals in our church? Raise your hand. Get them up. Look at that. Look at that. I mean, hey, the best friend to have is somebody in medicine. So praise be to God. I'm not minimizing that at all. Medical professionals, you guys are incredibly generous to us. Incredibly generous. I don't know how many times I hear about Dr. Susan White giving some kind of medical counsel to some worried mom. How, okay, moms, raise your hand if that's, if that's you. Raise it up. Susan, are you in here? All right, well, just give her a hand right here. She'll hear it later. So I'm not minimizing any of that. I'm not minimizing any of that. For us non-medical people, use those vocations, hobbies, whatever, to bless people. Do it. Do it. Do it. But spiritual gifts are gifts of grace. They're not gifts of having a doctor as a friend, even though from a Christian perspective, that's a grace too. I want you to see, as important and beneficial as those kinds of things are, it's not what you most need from your brothers and sisters. Even from your doctor friends. It's not what you need the most. You see, look at what Paul says. When Paul mentions prophecy, for example, he says... Those who have this gift should use it, look what he says, in proportion to their faith. Now, you've already seen in verse 3 that God gives different measures of faith to his people. But I want you to see right here, exemplified in one of the gifts, the kind of thing that you need from your brothers and sisters. And I'm talking to all of us, not just what you stand to get, what you need from each other, but what you are called to give. What you and I need most of all, are you listening to me? This is so important. What we need from each person is for them to use their gift of grace to the fullest extent of their faith. Now, let me be more clear. What I need from you, what you need from me, is everything you can get from God. Did you hear me? What I need most from you, brothers and sisters, and what you need most from me is everything that God in mercy would give to us. I need that. Don't be stingy. I want you to get everything that God is getting. I want you to I want your cup filled to the brim. I need that. I need that. You can't give to your brothers and sisters what you do not first possess. God is a generous giver. He's lavish in his gifts of grace to his people. And I need you. I need you, brothers and sisters. I need you to get from God everything that he wants to give you. And then I need you to share it with me. And I need you to share it in... in, The words of verse 8, generously, zealously, cheerfully. (laughs) Now just imagine what what a church would look like if we did this more and more. Can you begin to see it? What if every Sunday 
Every single one of us came in here into corporate worship with something to share with someone else about the grace that he or she has received this week. Every one of us. Like, don't walk out these doors. We, maybe we'll just, you know, police it over there. Have you shared your grace gift today? Can't get out until you do it. That'd be fun. Might try that. All right. But some of you would be like, uh, so what is it? Has God not poured out grace on you this week? Or have you not been listening to receive it? Or are you being stingy and not sharing it? What would it look like if each of us couldn't wait to get together with our missional families during the week because we got to share, we got to share God's gifts that he's poured out upon us in just the last three days? What what kind of church would that be? If everybody was eager to get together, not because, well, what do you got for me? But because, let me tell you what, let me tell you what God's given me this week. What kind of a community would that be? supposed to answer that, but you didn't. So I'll just keep going. I think that would be the most exciting community of faith you could ever be a part of. And perhaps one of the reasons why church and Christian community tends to bore us and not excite us is because we don't come with anything to share. It's not that God isn't giving gifts. It's because we're keeping them to ourselves, thinking, well, God's gifts are meant to end with me. Now, I don't mean to sound idealistic. I'm just going to confess to you. Getting together in missional families is not always fun. Pretty hard. How many of you are tired when it's time to go to mission, like you, all of a sudden you just get tired. It's like time to get together and you're like, oh man, I'm just worn out. How many, you think that's from the Lord? Maybe we have an enemy who knows one thing. If I can keep the people separate and not sharing their grace gifts, that's my strategy. Man, I get it. It's, it's difficult to be a member of the family. There's demands on me because I'm a dad and a husband. There's demands on me because I'm part of this family. It's not because I'm a professional Christian, you know, like this is my job. There's demands on me because I signed the church covenant just like you did. It matters that I show up. It matters that I'm there, and it really matters that I share the grace God has given to me. You need it, but I need yours. So in verses 9 to 13, Paul shows us what we're after. He shows us what this would look like in the family of faith. He shows us what God wants us to experience together. And in a word, it's love. (laughs) It's love. Now, verse 9, again, is missing a verb. It simply says, love, genuine. 
Again, our translations are surely correct that Paul is exhorting his readers to see to it that Christian love is not insincere, that it is not a show of flattery or fraternization. Yeah, that's not the kind of love we're after. But genuine love is hard to come by. You can't just say, okay, I'm just going to have genuine love right now. (laughs) According to the Bible, you can't make that happen. All of our love, apart from the mercies of God, will not be the kind of genuine love that God intends for us to experience. Let me show you. Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, he said, I hope to send to you Timothy because... I have no one like him who will, listen to me, says, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And we are then told what it was that made Timothy so different from anybody else. Paul said this, everyone else seeks their own interests. Wait for it. Not the interests. You know what he says? You might think he'd say the interests of others. That's not what he says. He says, I've got no one like Timothy. Everyone else just seeks their own interests, but Timothy seeks the interests of Christ. Huh. It's natural for members of a church, just like any other community of people, to try to get along with each other. That's a good idea. We should do that. (laughs) But that's not enough. Genuine love is something the world knows nothing about. It's something that only the church could experience. Here's how Paul says it when he writes to the Galatians. Galatians 4.19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. See, genuine love is not merely being concerned with the interests of others. You don't love people genuinely when you simply give them what they want, as any parent understands well. Genuine love consists of doing all that we can to see one another transformed into a Christ-shaped image. The gifts of grace that God has given to us are not only for this goal to be realized in us, but that in sharing them with each other to see all of us grow up into Christ. You remember 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, all the gifts have no value. It is only love, genuine love, that is the fuel for Christian ministry and service. It's by speaking the truth in love, Paul says in Ephesians 4, that we will grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Yes, indeed, for then Paul says that it is from Christ that the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You will forgive me if I insist that you, as a member of this church, do your part. (laughs) That is, receive from God everything he wants to give you. So here we are exhorted 
see to it that we possess genuine love for one another. Genuine love is necessary for the gifts to have their effect in the community. And genuine love has the goal, one goal, of seeing Christ and his cross-shaped life formed in your brother and sister. That's genuine love. So where do you begin? Well, you can't go wrong if you simply start with Paul's directions in verses 9 to 13. Quickly, I'll say them and we're done. Genuine love, look at it, will always abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And what both evil and good can only be discerned according to what God has plainly revealed in his word. Genuine love will take the shape of a brotherly affection for one another, seeking to, watch this, outdo one another in showing honor. What would that be like? Imagine, just imagine a community like that. Imagine a community that remains zealous and fervent, the fires of our motivation ignited by the recognition that we serve Christ as we love one another. Genuine love will rejoice in hope. And as we're experiencing together this week and remain patient in tribulation. In the body of Christ, there will always be the paradox of sharing in the joys of hope and the pain of grief all at the same time. Genuine love will always take the trouble to find ways to pray with one another rather than praying only when you feel like it. Genuine love will cheerfully contribute to the needs of the saints, which, by the way, you cannot not know since we are so devoted to one another that you keep showing up in each other's lives. And genuine love will certainly seek to show hospitality, regularly welcoming others into our homes for good food and drink and mutual encouragement. So there's plenty of places to start. You got an idea? You know how to go after it this week? Plenty of places to begin the pursuit of genuine love. But brothers and sisters, remember, the motivation must always be the transforming power of the mercies of God that you have already been shown. You're part of the family. And if you can keep that before you, if we can keep that before us, this Christian community, like all Christian communities, will be strengthened. The Christian community will be a credible community of gospel love. And as we'll see in next week's passage, the Christian community will be a powerful testimony to a watching world. Let's pray together.